Turn with me to the book of Haggai. Somehow I get all the really short books. Obadiah, Joel, Haggai, only two chapters long. It's right before we get to the New Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi, Matthew. Our text today is from the book of Haggai, chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, we'll go through verse 8. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but are never, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads in prayer and ask that God would come to us now and give us understanding from His Word. God, we need You. Come, Thou Almighty King, and dwell amidst amidst our presence. Now, God, we can't see unless You open our eyes. We can't hear unless You open our ears. We can't speak Your truth unless Your Spirit flows from our lips. And we can't obey and build Your house unless you work in us. So show us, God. Show us from your word. Inspire us and satisfy us as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and your pleasure that you may be glorified. Amen. Before I was a pastor, many of you know that I was a civil engineer, a transportation engineer to be particular. So my job for over a decade, was to design and build roads and bridges. It's a career that I left behind a few years ago, but I still have a trained eye as I drive down the road looking for ways that we could possibly improve our driving experience. Sometimes it's signal timing, sometimes it's shaping the road a little bit, or even just plowing brand new roads right through the path. Most of these ideas are kind of just my own fun that I have. They'll never come to fruition. We don't have enough money to build all my great ideas. But other ideas are much more obvious to everybody else. You wonder, when is this going to be done? Maybe there's like a stub of a road and you just know, man, that would be so much easier if that road were built. One of the most obvious examples of what everyone can see and wonders why it's not built is Highway 43 just south of Winona. Any of you have been there? You take I-90 east and take the 43 Winona exit to the north, and you'll go down the valley on a two-lane road into Winona. And as you go, you look on your right side, and you notice it looks like there's two more lanes maybe being built there. The trees are cleared out. There's even bridges built over the ravine at the bottom. And the ditches are carved, and the road foundation is laid. And you think, Oh, they must be coming back to this pretty soon. 
it would sure be nice when they finish those two lanes. So when I'm going up the hill the other direction and I'm behind a semi-truck and I have nowhere to pass, that extra lane would be great to get me on my way. And so you start thinking, maybe next summer. And the next summer passes. And maybe next summer. And the grass grows. And you realize it's been like that for over 20 years. The DOT start, decided to start this project without full funding. They thought, we'll come back. We'll do as much as we can and come back in a couple years when we get more money. And then we'll just put the pavement down and we'll be on our way. But it's been like this for 20 years. Other things took priority. They got distracted by other priorities and realized, eh, the community can get along without it. We'll move on. And now it lays there as a testimony to bad planning and misplaced priorities. And today we find ourselves in the book of Haggai, the prophet who looks around his city and he sees a far more egregious example of misplaced priorities in an unfinished temple. The Israelites had been exiled and finally after almost 70 years they get to return to their home. They lay a foundation and it lays there for almost 20 years. And Haggai's had enough. He stands before the leaders of the people and says, get to work building the house of the Lord. Get to work building the house of the Lord. This is the call to Israel in Haggai's day. But as we look at the historical pattern of what God has been doing since the beginning, we realize this is the call to us today as well. We must get to work building the house of the Lord. Only today it looks a lot different than what they expected. We aren't starting a a church building fundraising campaign today, but Haggai's calling us all to get to work building God's temple called the church. We'll begin looking at this building project first by looking at the misplaced priorities in our text in verses 3 to 6, and then start in verses 7 and 8 and see how we are called to build God's house. So let's go back to the text in chapter 1 and verses 3 to 6 and first look at Israel's misplaced priorities. Haggai says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Now, a lot's changed as we covered in Sunday school since the last week's prophet, uh, Zephaniah. We remember the books of, uh, what's his name? Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah all talking about this impending judgment that's coming upon Israel for their sin. The cities or the armies of Assyria, Babylon, are surrounding their cities just about to destroy them for their unfaithfulness. And then as history shows, the Babylonians finally overcame Jerusalem. They piled into the city. They demolished the temple. They destroyed everyone's homes. And they took all the survivors 900 miles away to the land of Babylon to be their slaves. But this wasn't a surprise. The prophets foretold this was going to happen. But the prophets also gave hope that after a period of time of purification there, 
God would restore a people and bring them back to the land where they could rebuild the temple and worship Him. And it would be glorious. This return began when the Persian Empire overthrew the Babylonians and King Cyrus issued a decree saying, Israelites, you may return home. Go build your temple. Worship God as you see fit. We read about this in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. A small group of Israelites began the 900-mile journey home, probably living in tents again on their way, just like they did wandering in the wilderness when they escaped Egypt. Led by Zerubbabel and Joshua. And as soon as they got there, they laid the foundation for the temple. They put that first stone in place and they rejoiced. Finally, we're doing it. They laid that first stone realizing God keeps His promises. But now, in Haggai, 20 years, almost 20 years later, nothing has happened. Nothing has improved since those stones were first laid. Working in the temple got a little difficult when they faced opposition. They suddenly realized, oh, maybe, maybe we should make some food for ourselves, put some clothes on our own bodies, build our own houses. You know, other things took priority. But verse 4 tells us that they ended up building, building really nice houses, these paneled houses. Verse 6 says they planted fields, vineyards that take a long time to nurture into fruitfulness. They started their own businesses. They did whatever it took to build comfortable lives. And for 18 years, did nothing to prioritize God's temple. 18 years was enough time to raise children to adulthood. And not once did they lift a finger to build God's house. Haggai's had enough. It's no longer excusable to avoid the work. All the opposition, the need for homes and clothing and protection, those just turned out to be convenient excuses for their misplaced priorities. So Haggai starts speaking with urgency and very specific detail to say, now is the time, get to work. Some of the people were saying, Ah, give us a few more years, then we'll get around to it. And he uses very specific dates to recall the promises from the other prophets to say, no, God is fulfilling His promises today. Get to work. And he calls very specific special leaders like Zerubbabel to guide this work. Zerubbabel is the grandson of the last king to rule in Jerusalem. He's got royal blood. His name means seed in Babylon. God kept a promise, the little seed that no one could see, and now it's sprouting to restore God's promises. This seed recalling the promise to Adam and Eve that one day a seed would rise to crush the head of the serpent. One day a seed would come from, the, from Abraham to make Israel this great nation. Recalling the promise to David that one of his sons, his own seed, would reign forever. And alongside of him is Joshua the priest. The name Joshua means Yahweh, the Lord, saves. Zerubbabel the king and Yahweh saves right here at this moment in time to say, get to work. Just as the prophets foretold, the time of salvation has come. The royal line is resurrected. Let's go, people. The excuses need to stop. They've had 18 years 
and haven't set their hands to God's work, which reveals something about their own hearts. These 18 years were sort of a test. Had they really come to the land to build God's temple and worship Him, to have freedom to worship God? Or did they come to land the land just to have freedom to live as was right in their own eyes? 18 years was enough to prove that covenant unfaithfulness was still their sinful disease, that they were no different than all the previous generations. 18 years is enough to show that being in the land doesn't automatically make you a faithful Israelite, just as being here on a Sunday doesn't automatically make you a Christian. Knowing Bible verses doesn't mean you know Jesus. Singing Christian songs doesn't make you a true worshiper. As more time passes in your life, the more it reveals what's in your heart. Do you spend your time building your own houses, planting your own fields, filling your own bellies, and pursuing your own priorities? Or are you working to build God's house, harvest in His field, worship Him in all you do? Haggai tells us that 18 years is plenty of time to reveal their priorities. They went to the land to build the temple, and they didn't. This is their final call. Will they be obedient? Go back to verse 7 and see Haggai's final call and we'll see what they did in response. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Verse 8 tells us the whole purpose of this building project is that God may take pleasure in it, that He may be glorified. Now this makes my heart struggle a little bit, right? Why in the world does God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, need a house? And the people who actually do need houses and food and all of that are told to prioritize His first. Are they just supposed to starve and go cold? That's not at all what He's saying. We've seen throughout the Bible, many other texts, that we are to find our safety, our provision, even all of our pleasure in pursuing Him first, and then He'll take care of us. Even the previous verses show that they had plenty enough to live. They, they knew how to survive on li- very little as they wandered throughout the wilderness on it, living in tents says that they sowed much, but they harvested little. They eat and drink a lot, but they're not satisfied. They have abundant clothes, but nobody's warm. They keep making money, but they can never seem to get ahead in life. It's because they have misplaced their priorities. So Haggai is saying in verses 7 and 8 what we hear Jesus say later in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Build God's house, and in His house, He'll provide shelter for you. God is not against you. His, it's not His pleasure stacked against your pleasure. We find our greatest satisfaction, our most wonderful pleasures in seeking Him first. And so what does Jesus say later about this house of His Father in John chapter 14? In my Father's house, there are many rooms If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. To build God's house is to build your house. Because with Him is where we were designed to be with His people as brothers and sisters and our Heavenly Father taking care of us in His home with many rooms. And so, inspired by this call of the people of Israel, after about a month of pleading, they finally get to work. Yes, let's build God's house. Verse 12 tells us that the people obeyed and they got to work building the temple with God's promise that He will be there with them to see it through. The entire purpose of building the temple is so God can dwell among His people. So He can take care of them. But then you turn to chapter 2 and the tune changes a little bit again. After a month of working on the temple, Haggai stops the construction work and he calls everyone to himself to step back and assess. Don't fall off the back of the stage. Assess what's going on here. He calls some of the men who are old enough to remember what that former temple looked like. He says, come, hey guys, come over here. What do you think? And Haggai tells us it was as nothing in their eyes. Ezra chapter 3 verse 12 tells us they weep over how far they've fallen. Is this really what it was all about? God promised us glorious things. And here we are with this pathetic temple. It looks terrible. The greatest moment in Israel's history when, was when Solomon was king and he built this beautiful, glorious temple. They were the most powerful, prosperous, influential nation in the world. And God said that the glory was going to be greater than that. And now here they are looking at this shanty of a temple going, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Is this for our God? What has gone wrong? But God assures them in chapter 2, keep working. Keep working. I have something far more glorious in mind than you realize. But there's a bit of a problem. Verses 10 to 19 explain that this temple they're building isn't going to be the one that he's looking forward to. Haggai addresses Joshua and the priesthood there. And he reasons with them using the law that they know well by now. He says, you guys know that the holiness and purity cleanliness laws, right? If something is unclean like a dead animal and you come by and touch it, now you're unclean. And anything you go over and touch, now that's unclean too. You see the problem here. You people are unclean. We've established that. And now you're trying to build a holy temple which will turn out to be nothing but an unholy house for God. 18 years has proven that they are unholy. And their efforts to build this house are in vain. So the way that Haggai writes this is to leave us longing for so much more than this structure. The temple, the priesthood, even Zerubbabel, the governor, not king, leaves you feeling underwhelmed. Really, God, isn't there more? Is this what you promised? Who's going to come and cleanse us and provide for us and build this temple so you can live with us? 
What Israel didn't realize as they wept over their pathetic temple was God had far more in mind than a building in a city. When God spoke in chapter 2 of building this temple, He wasn't looking just at the building, but so much more. God has been building a temple since the very beginning. This was just to be a reflection of that greater temple. He was building a temple that would fill the entire earth. So let's back up, as we like to do often, to the book of Genesis and see this great temple building project that started right in the beginning. Genesis chapter 2 tells us about the construction of the temple. Did you realize that the Garden of Eden is a temple? It's built on top of a mountain. You can see that by all the rivers flowing out of it. And there's gold and precious stones all over. God's presence dwells there with the people. And Adam and Eve were priests in this temple given the commands to work and to keep the garden. Two commands that fit together. Build and protect. Build and guard that only are later given to priests in the book of Numbers at the temple. And the plan of this work was to expand the borders of this temple until it filled the whole earth. But they didn't do it. They did what the Israelites did in Haggai. They began to eat more as though they were already there. So they were kicked outside the temple because of their sin with these giant angels there guarding the way so they couldn't come back in. You cannot dwell with God if you are unholy, if you are unclean. But just because Adam and Eve were kicked out doesn't mean the building project was finished. God would keep on building. Later on, when He rescued His people from Egypt, He had them build a new tabern- a temple called a tabernacle, a tent that they could pack up and take with them wherever they went as they wandered through the wilderness. And you see in Exodus 26 in the instructions for the tabernacle that it looks a lot like a garden. Massive pillars that are built out of tree, tree trunks that hold the structure up. And there's decorations of flowers and fruit all over. The furniture reminds them of being in a garden. Guarding the entrance, massive angels reminding them that only those who are holy can come in just like Eden. Once they finally settled in Jerusalem, they started thinking a little bit differently. King David says, we've got this great city and we all have wonderful houses, unlike in Haggai's day. David was ashamed that he had a great house and God is living in a tent. So he said, we are building God an amazing temple. God tried to tell him that he had far more in mind than a building, but David didn't understand, so he got to work planning. And he says, as we see in 1 Kings 6 and 7, again, it sounds a lot like this garden. These should have been hints to them to realize that the temple is more than just a building. The temple is something far more glorious than they realize. So in Haggai chapter 2, when God sees the people standing around their little temple and they're weeping over it, He says, don't worry, the latter glory of this will be greater than the former. He's not just looking at the building. He's looking at the people surrounding it going, I am going to build you into something glorious. This truth becomes more clear when 500 years later, Jesus comes along. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
The word dwelt there is the word tabernacle, just like the thing, the tent that traveled through the wilderness. He is the temple. He's the tabernacle. Jesus affirms this in the next chapter, John 2, when He's at the temple structure that they finally rebuilt, and they're threatening Him. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. He was speaking about the temple of His own body. And so He would speak to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, saying, we need to stop debating about which mountain to worship on, which temple is the right temple. What I have come to do is destroy every temple so that you can worship in spirit and truth wherever you go, because the whole earth will be filled with His glory. Jesus is the temple who made it possible for people to dwell with God again. He walked here on earth with people. But He wanted even more than that. More glorious than Jesus Himself in one place at a time on this planet. As Isaiah foresaw, the whole earth would be filled with His glory just as Adam and Eve were commanded to do in the first place. And Jesus is the King in the line of David through Zerubbabel who would come along and finally complete the building project. But He would have to do so first by taking upon Himself the sins of the people. Experiencing exile, being kicked outside of His temple and facing the destruction of His temple. Just like when Babylon destroyed the temple in Jerusalem for Israel's sins, Jesus, the temple of His body, would have to be destroyed for the sins of His people. He hung on the cross as one exiled, kicked out of God's temple presence. And He took upon Himself the just punishment for our sins, death. But His exile would only be short a three-day exile. Because the end of this temple became the beginning of a new, more glorious temple. Jesus says right before He's crucified in Matthew 21, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I am laying a new foundation in My resurrection that when I rise, I will be the first stone laid on a much greater temple. So if you're wondering where this is going, what this temple looks like, Paul clarifies for us in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. This new temple is called the church. You guys are part of this temple. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's not just speaking to individuals, you're a temple and you're a temple, but all together, when we gather, we are showing the world what God's temple looks like. God comes down and He's pleased to dwell with us when we build our lives together. We couldn't build a temple because our hands are unclean. We are unholy. But by His life, death, and resurrection, Jesus cleaned us to make us into holy, clean, pure bricks that can be used in the temple, but also to wash our hands so that now we become the hands of God, the holy, clean hands of God to finish His construction work. So now we hear the call from Haggai. That's the same to us. Get to work building 
the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord, before you do anything else. But unlike Haggai, we now have holy hands because of Christ to build His house. And I think Paul is basically repeating the story in Ephesians chapter 2, picking up the mantle of Haggai and telling us the same thing. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and we'll see the same type of imagery. He says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins at the beginning of chapter 2. You were worthless, unclean, holy, can't be used for God's work. But verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. He cleaned these bricks and made them useful again. And how is it done? Not by any of our own work. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's only by faith, by trusting in Him that you are cleaned. And what did He clean us for? Verse 10. For His workmanship. He shapes us into the right shape of brick, of stone. And we're created in Christ Jesus then for good works, giving us holy hands so that He who works in us now makes us useful to do His building work. And He clarifies what the building work is in verses 19 to the end. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The temple building project continues, and it is you that He is building together. Paul's giving the same message. A foundation has been laid. The apostles and the prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter, as in Matthew 16 says, is the first stone after Jesus. And now we take their work and build upon it. Take their word and wash each other and stack each other up so we are knit together, put together into a holy house for God. So the question is now, how do we do it? How does this glorious temple building project give us practical things how should we think about that in our day-to-day lives or when we meet weekly first we need to see that this temple building project is still incomplete revelation 21 gives us the beautiful picture when heaven comes down and fills the earth and it's a beautiful garden city with rivers of life and and precious gold and god's presence fills the whole earth. But that day hasn't yet come. Until that day, our primary task in this world is to build the church. No matter what your career path is, what you do with your week, everything you do is for the purpose of building the church. As Jake taught us in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, your work is extremely valuable because it's the means God has given you to build His house. You make money to give to the building project. You go meet with other people so that you can offer them washing in Christ and stack them up onto the house. And it also views or it changes how we view what's going on here as we gather. We realize that 
our only adornment in this unfinished house is Christ. The house isn't finished yet, so we don't start putting up decorations and start playing the, the fancy music and putting comfortable beds in there yet. We're not done building the structure. So stop making comparisons between other churches when we say, oh, that one is farther along in the building project. Or we don't shop for churches with the most comfortable experience and the best programs because that misses the point of your calling. We're not called yet to sit back, relax, enjoy the comforts of the house. We're called to get to work building the house. And get to work helping us send others to build more rooms of this house as we would like to do in the coming years. But how do we build it? What are the tools of this building project? This might sound a little repetitive and ordinary to you guys. We say, say this over and over. But the toolbox that we're given is what we today call church membership. And you open it up and the tools are discipleship and baptism and communion and discipline. Holding each other accountable. Teaching the Word. From beginning to end, the whole Bible is telling the story of God gathering people together, unifying them into a family who are committed to one another and show His presence among us by our love for each other. That's what church membership is. It's a commitment to have your living stone of a life stacked on top of other people so that you are dependent upon each other. And baptism is just the process of washing the stones so they're clean, holy stones. And communion is the glue that strengthens our bond together as we fill the gaps between us and we take a break and have a meal reminding us that we're a family living in this house. The house is unfinished yet, so it's not a feast as it will be on that great day. It's just a little meal that we have to say, okay, you're satisfied, now get back to work. And then we hold each other accountable and church discipline and loving one another and bearing each other's burdens and rejoicing and weeping with one another, singing with one another, speaking truth to one another. This is how we seal the cracks that have shown as we get stacked really close together. These are the tools of building God's temple. The only thing we do to beautify it is exalt Christ on the walls to say, look at Him, this is how beautiful it is. We invite Him to the head of the table to say, this meal only happens because of Him. And we get to work building His house. We go and make disciples and baptize them, putting them on the house. We invite them into communion to share in the meal with us, to commit us more together, to lay the mortar between us. When there are cracks between us, we go to one another and have the hard conversation and apply the grace of our Lord Jesus by His Word to solidify our bond. And this building project will face many difficulties. Much opposition. It's going to look rather unimpressive at some times. Many distractions. Satan will throw in our way, but we continually call each other back week after week after week to remind one another as Haggai did, as Paul did, refocus all your efforts on building God's house, on building the church. Every other effort in your life, your career, Seeking food, seeking pleasure will come up empty until you prioritize 
building God's house. Don't be distracted by other pursuits. God will take care of you when you focus on building His house so that, as He says in Haggai 1.9, in this I will take pleasure and be glorified. So let's together build the house of the Lord. Let's pray. God, what could be greater than us ordinary people putting our holy hands to work building Your church? I pray that we would be inspired by this call, by this promise that one day it will fill the earth to go and make disciples and baptize them and to invite them into the family to be part of the structure. God, inspire us to go and love one another and and seal the cracks between us by having the hard conversations. God, help us to glorify You and be satisfied by nothing other than seeing Christ exalted in our midst in His holy temple. Amen.